Take your Bibles, if you would. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. You'll see on the overhead before we pray, I want us to remember today our police and fire department. I, I can't try to stay up with the news as much as I can. And you know, just last week, there were some police officers who were killed in the line of duty and got me to looking and uh, found that in the year of 2018, we're, we're just barely into this year. And already this year, at least 20 officers across the United States have died in the line of duty. 20 policemen since the beginning of this year. And since the beginning of this year, at least 10 firemen have died in the line of duty. And so let's take a moment as we pray, as we pray for these men and women of our police and fire departments who serve our community, and especially for Sergeant Mike Huffman, who serves us here at, uh, at Calvary. Uh, he's out in the lobby right now, and uh, at the end of the service, you'll see him out there directing traffic, trying to help make sure we all get out safely. And that's a great thing. It really is. And so let's, uh, let's pray for these folks. Would you join me? Our Father, it is you who has instituted government. And within the governmental structure are services from men and women that we vitally need. And so, Father, we want to thank you for our police and fire departments. In the midst of danger and your mercy, we ask that you would protect them. Though we know that in a dangerous world, people who courageously put their lives on the line will sometimes lose their life. And while we should be immensely thankful for their sacrifice, we also long for the age to come that you have promised, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and where the services of the police department and fire department will no longer be necessary, and there will be no more death. Father, we particularly thank you for Sergeant Mike Huffman, who serves our church family. We are grateful for him, and we pray for him and his family. We also want to pray for Dale and Carla Decker as they make a transition in life. We are thankful for them, and over the next few weeks, want to find ways to let them know that. Lord, we pray as they make a change right now as we pray for ourselves. We also ask your blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of your word today as it goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a monthly task that I have found every month to be very challenging. Most of you are aware that I am a part-time chaplain for Gordon Food Service in Shepherdsville. 
Every month, I attend a new employee orientation. I am there to speak to the employees about one of their many benefits. Uh, and the particular benefit that I speak to them about is, is, is called the Care Partner Program. Um, it, it, what that means is they are going to have a team of chaplains that come to the work site uh, throughout the week. In other words, there's a hardly a day during the weekday that a chaplain doesn't show up and walk through and get to know the workers and to help serve them and their families. And I'm part of that, uh, that team. And so I'm there to explain to these new employees this benefit. And I know that it's important. I know that it's valuable. I've been doing this almost 12 years now. And I know how important it can be. I know how valuable it can be. But I never feel as if they see it that way. When I'm standing before these new employees, you know, they're hearing about, you know, uh, their hospitalization, they're hearing about life insurance, they're hearing about, you know, college for their kids, they're hearing about a lot of benefits that come through working at Gordon Food Service. But I'm telling about one benefit about, hey, there's chaplains that come by uh, every week and uh, that's a unique, valuable benefit. But I never seem to feel that they feel that way. And I always end by saying this. You may feel right now that you don't need this benefit, but I can tell you from experience, many have found it to be valuable. And I still don't feel like they get it. (laughs) And I tell you that because I feel that way today. I felt that way last Sunday. Because I began last Sunday speaking to you about leadership in the church. Leadership in the church, shepherding God's people. I felt that way last Sunday. I feel that way this Sunday. Because I'm speaking to you about a benefit from God. And and just as I was speaking to those employees, I want those employees to know that the company that they work for really values them to the degree that they would go this far to offer care. You see, I want you to know and value, know and value and be thankful to God who loves his church and has provided the benefit of godly leadership. To the church. See, again, I know, I, I, you know, I feel this weight. I feel like, you know, I know that, goodness, I, I don't know that you would value, you know, this subject as much as we should. So I'm going to do the best I can, you know, as last week, do the best I can today to, to just, but the, most of all, the help of the Holy Spirit to just gonna help us to see this is a benefit that, from God that we need to be thankful for. Let's recap. You, you'll see a little bit of a recap from last week. One, God loves his church. He calls it a flock. That's tender. That's tender word, flock. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. That's the picture we need to get. God loves his church and is committed to its welfare. He is so committed to its welfare that he provides godly leadership for his church. And then thirdly, elders, pastors, and overseers are central to God's plan for leading his church. So begin with a question today. God loves his church He is committed to his church's welfare, and he provides godly leadership for his church. But did God intend for his church to be led by just anyone? Think about that for a moment. God provides leadership for his church, but did did he intend this leadership to be from just anyone? Or did he give instructions for church leadership? Catherine and I had been... Christians for just a little over a year, the 
church we were attending, we came in on a Wednesday night, and there was a huge blackboard up on the platform. And there were many names on it. We were told that night that we needed to choose, each, each one of us needed to choose two names of prospective leaders. In other words, they, they, they wouldn't be elders. They should have been. But, and, and, and this was a horrible process, by the way. But we were told to, to choose two people. We were not given any instruction. We were not given any biblical qualifications. We were not given anything but a blackboard with names on it and said, we're going to pick two people that are going to assist the pastor in leadership. We had no business choosing. We had no business choosing. One, one we, we were, again, we weren't instructed in any kind of qualifications. All it was was a popularity contest. You, you, and you, and you, and you choose, choose two people. Here's the, here's the people, choose them. And so Catherine looked at me and she said, who do I pick? And I spoke up and I said, choose him and him. And here's why. It was because I knew these two men from my childhood. I knew them from growing up in church. I recognized them. I knew them and pick them. I, I, I pick them, you pick them. And we picked them. And so did enough other people to where they were installed as leaders and friends, I want you to know that within three months, they destroyed that church single-handedly. And that church has never, never been the same. Friend, if you get leadership wrong, everything else is going to be wrong, really. So that, that begs the question, how are, how are elders selected at Calvary? How do we go about selecting elders here at Calvary? Well, because the current elders... Because the current elders are entrusted with the spiritual oversight of the church, they have the responsibility to lead the church in selecting and nominating new elders. Okay, so, so how does it happen? It doesn't happen with a big blackboard. It's not a popularity contest. It begins from within the elder board. Then new elders are then appointed by the consent of the congregation. In other words, there'll they'll come a point in the process where the congregation will weigh in. Elders at Calvary, elders at Calvary are those who are recognized by the elder board. No matter what their title may be, elders at Calvary are those who are recognized by the current elder board. And since God did not intend for his church to be led by just anyone, we look to qualifications that he has given for elders. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And we're just starting. We're going to only be able to get through part of them. We'll get the rest of them next Sunday. So we're going to look at qualifications. God, God, God doesn't intend just for anyone. There are some people that are excluded from leadership. And that doesn't go over well in a, in a world of inclusion <laughs> where everybody's supposed to, everybody, you know, no, I'm sorry. Uh, according to the scripture, uh, there are qualifications, which means by virtue of that, some are excluded from church leadership. Look at verse 1 with me. Would you do that? Let's walk through a few of these that are found, especially in the first two verses. We'll leave the remainder of them for next Sunday. Notice in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires 
a noble task. Well, now there's that word overseer. You say, look, Pastor Van, you've been saying elder. That says overseer. You remember last week the words elder, pastor, and overseer are used interchangeably. And so we're, we're speaking about the same. When we say overseer, speaking of a pastor, speaking of a pastor, speaking of an elder. See, when you read this at first, now I want you to look at this really close. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now that may sound like at the beginning that Paul is commending selfish ambition. He may be, you know, you, you, you'd read that and you'd go, is Paul saying, hey, push in, push in and, and get your place in leadership. You know, it'd be like the guy, you know, he's sitting at the table and he, you know, he said, well, you know, we're thinking about, you know, looking into adding elders and he's like, well, he raises his hand, it's about time you recognize me. It's about time you saw that, you know, you, you missed me all these years. The, what a great leader I am. See, that, that would be selfish ambition. And Paul is not endorsing. He's not commending selfish ambition at all. In fact, the focus is less on the person and more on the position. You see, that, that's what he's saying in verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The more emphasis is on the task. It's on the posi- position rather than the person. Because the position or the task involves the care and the nurture of God's people. And this is something that we should aspire to. In other words, if you have any desire to be in leadership in the church, it should be driven by the passion and the desire to serve and to care for God's people. It, it should not be out of selfish ambition of, I want to get, I want to get in there and I want to be able to, I want my hand on the wheel. You know, that, that sort of thing. No, it should be, I want, I want to serve God's people. The aspiration and the desire to lead God's church is not out of self-centered ambition, but from genuine love and commitment to and for God's flock. Notice in verse 2, the very first word, therefore, which therefore always means since this is true, since this is real, since this is the case. So since this is the case that it's a noble desire to serve God's people, that overseer must be above reproach. Now, this is, uh, this, maybe you have a translation that actually says blameless. Overseer, the elder, the pastor must be blameless. Now, here's where we need to just step back for a moment and say, how am I going? How am I going to read these passages? Am I going to read them in a wooden way? Let, let me give you an example. Look at verse one. It says, "Notice it says, if anyone aspires." Now, right there, if you're reading this in a wooden way, you go, "Well, it says anyone." <laughs> Nobody's excluded. If anyone, see, you've got to be careful how we read. If anyone, well, we go on to find out that anyone narrows down to those qualified. So first thing we do is we ask, how am I going to read this? Am I going to read this in a wooden way? Let me give you an example. Does Paul mean here when he says above reproach or blameless, does he mean that an elder has transcended sin and leads a morally impeccable life. Now think about that for a minute. Another word would be perfect. <laughs> is Paul saying, if you're going to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer in the church, you've got to be perfect. You have to have transcended sin. You're never going to stumble. Never, ever, ever in any way. Is that what Paul means? 
I mean, if you read it in a wooden way, that's what you would have to conclude. You, you would go, well, blameless, good, good grief, above reproach, blameless. Do you understand? That would clear the room. <laughs> the only one left would be the Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, we somehow know that this is not what Paul means. Why? Because God's gift to his church is godly leadership. So it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be human beings other than Jesus. So we have to recognize right away that Paul is not saying that an elder transcends sin and is morally impeccable. Rather, this person is, who is above reproach, displays an exemplary degree of Christ-likeness, free from outward, obvious, noticeable sin. How many of you understand there's the outward and then there's inward? You can see my outward, right? But you can't see my inward, can you? I mean, my inward's eventually going to get outward, right? <laughs> right? But when Paul says above reproach, he's referring to the display of an exemplary degree of Christ-likeness, free from outward, obvious, noticeable sin. Maybe this will help. Uh, I can't pronounce this gentleman's last name, but his first name is Thabiti. And here is what he said in his book on leadership in the church. Being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man who no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. And notice in that definition, it does not say that they have transcended sin, that they're perfect, that they can never, ever, ever, ever in any case sin. It doesn't say that. It means it's the kind of person who no one would suspect of wrongdoing or immorality, and people would be shocked if those charges were laid against him. You see, I think you can see this. I hope you can see this. Do you see how this helps safeguard the church's witness to the community? See, it really matters. It, it really does matter we're here in Mount Washington. Just, let's just use that for example. It matters how the community views us. Now, I know, I know you would say, well, you know, they, community, they probably hate the church. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that that's always the case. But certainly we don't need to give them something to hate. We don't, we don't need to live lives that people are going to go, see, I told you. A bunch of phonies, a bunch of hypocrites. No. See, again, leadership that is qualified, that is above reproach, is a safeguard. It safeguards the church's witness to community. And, and this phrase, above reproach, seems to be a general covering for all of the virtues that are getting ready to follow. And so let's look at them. Look at, look at the next one. It has to be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now you might say, good grief, what in the world? What in the world would that have? Any, yeah. we, see, we live in a world, we live in a world that tells us that a person's sex life is nobody's business. Just a few weeks ago, beginning of this year, the, uh, the mayor in Nashville, Tennessee, it, uh, it came, you know, it was exposed that she and uh, her security, uh, the leader of her security detail were having an affair. Both of them were married. And at first, at first, the public was like, oh, look, look, this is not, our, not our business. <laughs> Not our, what people do in their own sex life, that's, 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 you know, it's like, don't touch that, don't touch that. But then, last week, <laughs> when it became clear that they had stolen thousands of dollars, then everybody come unglued. Right. 
In other words, sex life, that doesn't matter. Uh, but money, oh, well, you've got our tax money. What are you doing with our tax money? See, in the world, in the world, we're, we're told that a person's sex life doesn't matter. But in the church, listen, in the church, an elder's whole life matters immensely. So we're not talking about leadership out in the world. We're talking about leadership in the church. And it says the husband of one wife, or other translations actually say a one-woman man. Now, why is this important? First, just help, th- think with me. Why would this be important? Because this is important because it conveys the idea of a faithful husband who honors the covenant of sacred marriage. In other words, it's, it's, it's a person... Who's a, it's a person who, who loves their wife and they love the God who gave the covenant of marriage. Those are going to be faithful to their spouse and faithful to their God when it comes to this matter of sexuality. Now, this passage, this, this these few words, there's been a lot of ink spilled over these few words. A husband of one wife. And first thing I want you to recognize is this. It's clear that Paul is excluding certain persons from this position. But who are they? Who are the people that are excluded from this position? Now, here, here are the five. Let me give you five of them. The five popular suggestions of who's being excluded here. One, some say that Paul is excluding polygamists. He's basically saying, look, if you have more than one wife, you, you're out. You can't be an elder. Uh, secondly, we'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, some say that Paul is excluding men who have never been married. Because if you read this in a wooden way, remember, if you read this in a wooden way, it says the husband of one wife. Well, that would mean, if you read it in a wooden way, that a man who's never been married, he can't be a, he can't be a leader, right? Because he's not a husband of one wife. He's not a husband of any wife. <laughs> so some would say that's what Paul is, 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 is referring to. Others would say that Paul is speaking to widowed men who have remarried. That if their spouse died and they got remarried, you're out. Others say, and this is the popular one, that if you have been divorced and remarried, you're excluded. One final one is the exclusion of those guilty of unfaithfulness while being married. So Paul is excluding, Paul is excluding somebody. So who is it? Well, I think we can rule out polygamists. That's the most unlikely of the whole list because when you go back in church history, what we find, what, what we've discovered is this, that during the first century, polygamy among believers was virtually unknown. And so it's unlikely that Paul was grabbing something like this and, 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 and using that as an exclusion. That's not likely. So here's what it comes down to. This phrase, husband of one wife or one woman man, must then be taken one of two ways, literally or figuratively. Literally would mean this. It would mean to, it mean to ha- having never been remarried, whether you were divorced or widowed. In other words, if we took it, take it literally, that would mean the exclusion to church leadership as far as elder, pastor, overseer, would mean that if you have been remarried, uh, whether you're divorced or widowed, you're out. Or... It's figuratively. Figuratively would mean this. It means that you are a one-woman man and that you are faithful to your spouse, which would mean this. Maybe you were widowed and you remarried, but in your remarriage, you have been faithful. 
you have been a one-woman man. Or, in this position, it would be even if you were divorced, if you were the innocent party. Now, this gets complicated, and we don't have enough time to go over it all, but if you were the innocent party, and you remarried, and you've been faithful to that spouse, and you've been a one-woman man, then you would be qualified. See, it depends on whether you take it literally or figuratively. Now, you're asking. I know. I can hear you. <laughs> you're saying, well, what's the, the position here at Calvary? The, the 41 years. This church is almost 41 years old. Calvary has held a literal position, particularly regarding those divorced and remarried. In other words, what the position has been so far has been that if a person has been divorced and remarried, that, that disqualifies them from leadership at Calvary. However, let, let me just throw out something here that you need to think about. However, I have strong sympathies for the figurative position for this reason, for this reason. I believe that just because a man, he can be married and have never been divorced, that man can still violate the sacred covenant of marriage in many ways. In other words, they, they, can, they can be somebody, I've been with the same woman, brother. I don't treat her very well, you know. And my eyes are all over the place, you know. I've been faithful to this one woman, and I haven't been divorced, and I haven't, but they violate the sacred covenant of marriage in many ways, and they are not in their heart a one-woman man. See, that's why that I have some sympathy toward the figurative position. Because here's, let me just say it this way. I would rather have a man in leadership. I would rather have a man who was innocent in the divorce. That's why I say there's a lot of, lot of things you'd have to consider. I would rather have a man who was innocent in the divorce and remarried and had been faithful to his wife, a one-woman man honoring the sacred covenant of marriage than to have a man who had been married to the same woman for 30 years, but in his heart he was not a one-woman man. You don't have to amen that. You don't have to. It's not going to change how I feel at all whether you do or you don't. <laughs> but I'm just saying that there can even be problems. There can even be problems with a man who has never been divorced, never been widowed, and still be problems for him in leadership. Let me move on. In that same verse, you see three phrases, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Look at this verse with me, Proverbs 25 and 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken in two and left without walls. Can you see that picture? Just, just kind of picture with me this community, this city enclosed, but the walls have been torn down, it's overrun, and everybody's in danger. See, what that verse is telling us is this. Without these virtues of sober-mindedness and self-control, you are left exposed and vulnerable to the enemy, and people are going to get hurt. In other words, if you, if you, if you have a person who has no sober-mindedness and no self-control, not only could they get hurt, not only could their family get hurt, but those who they attempt to lead can get hurt. What does this mean, sober-mindedness, self-controlled, respectable? It means mental 
self-control. It is a person not given to rashness or excess. It is a person who is sensible, stable, and balanced in judgment. Can't can't you see how valuable those virtues are? Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and therefore it's a mark of the Christian life. Next is hospitable. Now, just take that word, hospitable. What word comes to mind? Hospital. People go to a hospital not, not because they're well. Because they're not well. They need help. They need attention. Hospitable here means inviting others into your life. Notice, it, it, you're, you're going to be, a, to, to, to at least some degree, a self-giving person. You're, you're going to have room. You're going to have room for people's needs and concerns. Next, and the final one that we'll look at today is apt to teach. Apt to teach. Uh, this is the ability to teach the truth of God's word and refute error. What's important here is this. When you look at requirements for deacons, this is not a requirement for a deacon. The deacon-elder requirements match up except here, this one thing. Elders must be apt to teach. Titus chapter 1, look at this quickly with me. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine also, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Apt to teach. We'll look at the rest next week, but here, let's stop here for just a moment. Here, here's what I want to I help you see. God is first interested in who and what I am before he's concerned in what I do. He, he's more concerned not in my accomplishments, not in my educational, you know, all these things are good. There's nothing wrong with them. But God is more interested in who and what I am than what I do because what I am conditions what I might do. It's called character, character. All all of these virtues that we're looking at speak of a person of character. And so I hope, first let me tell you what I hope you're not seeing. I hope you're not looking at these and going, okay, well, I I see where leaders need to be above reproach and they need to be sober-minded and hospital. I see where they need to be, but that's where, that's for them. That's, that's for that tier of Christianity. And I'm on this tier down here. And so it really doesn't matter whether, how I live. Friend, don't see that. Don't, don't look at this in such a wooden way that says, well, that's, that's for these people. Not, it doesn't matter how I live. You see, this all speaks to Christian character. Not, not only does the leadership of a church not, not only that is reflected in the community, so are its members. So can I take just a few minutes and just address this issue of character? Character is the sum of all the bits and the pieces or the qualities that make up you as you really are. You, just, I just want you to finish out the time thinking about character. What, what, what is my character? What is my Christian character? And so how, how do I cultivate Christian character How do I change? How do I become more Christ-like? And let me walk you through four simple steps. First one is repentance. For the Christian, our life is a discipline of ongoing repentance. Because without repentance, there is no change. There will be no change unless we repent before God. What does that look like? It's seeing and being humbled by our sin. First, seeing our sin and being humbled 
by it. It's not looking out at the rest of the congregation and go, I think I'm up on about 40% of these folks. I, live, I know I live better than her. <laughs> and I know I live better than him. I'm sure of that. It's not looking at everybody else. It is looking at ourselves. It's not a, it's not a navel staring contest where we're constantly looking at ourselves. Oh, poor me, poor me. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. No. It is consciously aware as we read the scriptures, as we hear the word of God, as God deals with our hearts, seeing and being humbled by our sin, and then turning to God for pardon, peace, and power. The first step in developing and cultivating Christian character is repentance. Number two, turn from your idols. We have talked about this many times, but let me just suffice to say is this. Got to identify them. You got to know what they are. You ever thought about that? You ever ask yourself, well, I wonder what my idols are. It's identifying and dismantling those things that you serve that you build your identity upon. I mean, just the other day I was talking with a man, and I mean, his life, his life is really messed up right now. And he's, he, the most important thing to him is how do they think of me at work? His, his whole drive, his whole drive is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this extra, and I'm going to do that extra. And if I don't do this, what are they going to think? And I'm, I'm going to do this, and they'll really love me then. You are a slave, my brother. I'm not, I'm not discounting hard work. I'm not discounting commitment. I'm just saying if in your heart... Your work holds the title to your heart. The wrong person has the title to your heart. The title to your heart belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's identifying and realizing, look, my identity is not built upon my boss. It's not built upon the work. It's not even built upon my family. It's built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, you mean i got to put Christ before my family? Your family won't be in a better position than to have Jesus first. You got Jesus first, your family is going to be just fine. Trust me. Thirdly, worship. You turn from your idols and say, Lord Jesus, you hold the title to my heart. Worship is cultivating a life of putting Christ first. You start saying, it's Jesus first. But, you know, you start, I want to I do this, and I, I feel like I want to do this, and I feel really strong desires for this. What does Jesus say? What is he, what, does, can Jesus weigh in on that? Can Jesus have a say in it? Is he Lord? Is he master? Does he have the title to your heart? See, that's where change comes. That's where Christian character is cultivated and developed. It's repentance, turning from our idols, worship, and finally spiritual disciplines. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this. It's simply things like this. Apply yourself to reading, studying, and meditating upon the scriptures. But really, I mean, there's no shortcut, folks. Really, if we want to develop and cultivate Christian character, we need to know what does God say? What has he said? And then cultivate a life of prayer in all forms. Not just asking, not just petitions, but thanksgiving, supplication, intercessory, all the others. Character change. And listen, it's a close. Character change takes time. Be patient, okay? God's patient with you. Be patient with yourself. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said this. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your you're making progress in holiness, making progress in developing Christian character. That's God's design for each one of us. Well, a little encouragement for that. Um, remember, the scripture says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And when it says that he's our author, it's literally pioneer. A pioneer is a person whose actions lead others to share in the consequences of their accomplishments. Jesus is our pioneer, and those who trust in him 
are enjoying the fruit of his accomplishments, you see. And so what happens? He, he, he ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what did he do? He sent us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us to progressively fulfill his will in us. Progressively. Again and again, working with us, patiently working with us. Progressively fulfilling his will in us. And so what we could say today as we get ready to go, we could say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, change me. Change me. Make me more like my pioneer. Fulfill more of his will in me. Not my will, but fulfill more of his will 